The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. We're in the book of Exodus, and we are going to be picking up in chapter 10 of the book of Exodus. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray, and then we're just going to pick up and look at this passage together. Father in heaven, We thank you for your word. We thank you for this grand story of the book of Exodus, of your gospel to seek and save the lost, to make a name for yourself. And God, we pray that as we look at this book together, that as we look at your story, that we not just see our story in it, but that we see your great name and your mercy to us in Jesus. Father, would you send your spirit now and open our eyes as we open your word. In Jesus' name, amen. What we are looking at tonight, uh, we have been looking at the plagues of the book of Exodus. If you know anything about the plagues, there's 10 of them, and we're looking at the last two. And what we are looking at tonight is potentially one of the most important events in human history. It's one of the defining moments of the Bible. It's one of the defining moments of the story. It's a bit of like one of the defining moments of any country or any people. Um, You know, you have the Declaration of Independence for America, which is a defining moment. We celebrate it on July 4th. It becomes a national holiday. It it defines a bit of the ethos of who we are as a people. Um, Or you have uh, D-Day for World War II, right? That's the day when everything changes, and it becomes a bit of a marker for modern history. What we're looking at tonight with these last two plagues in the book of Exodus is one of the defining moments of your entire Bible, right? The, of, of human history, but specifically the Bible, as we're looking at this, these two plagues draw us into some of the most central moments, some of the central themes, some of the most important things you could ever look at your Bible and understand and read and know about God. And so as we're looking at them, what I want to do is I just want to kind of review the history of the book of Exodus up to this point. Just kind of remind us, as we land in these last two plagues, where have we been and what have we been seeing? So remember, the book of Exodus starts out connecting to the story of Genesis, right? God's a faithful God. He promises to this moon-worshiping Abram, I'm going to make you into a nation of people that's as big as the stars of the sky, I'm going to make a whole new people out of you. And through all the, you know, craziness of the book of Genesis and all the people and what's going on there, they land themselves, God lands them in Egypt. And it takes about 400 years from when the book of Genesis ends to where the book of Exodus begins. And there are 400 years of wondering where is God and is he going to fulfill these promises that he made to our forefathers, right? Just as a reminder, America is, I looked up this afternoon, 241 years old, right? We are not even close, like we're like barely over the 400 year, like close to the halfway mark of that 400 year mark. Uh, This is a long time. And these people are wondering, where are you at God? What's going on? Are you faithful? And yes, God's been faithful, right? They, they are growing. Uh, they have lots of kids, and they're becoming a bit of a, a political problem for Egypt. The Pharaoh at the time, he's like, these people are getting a little out of hand. And so what he decides to do is, is ultimately a genocide against these people. 
right? So we begin the book of Exodus with uh, tragedy and tri- uh, a trial and some, and some major concerns, God, what's going to happen? And so genocide is, is enacted against the people, right? They're going to throw all their baby boys into the river. And Moses, out of midst of all this, Moses is saved. Remember, we were looking at how he was saved through this basket, right? The ark. He was saved out of these waters to become God's messenger. And he doesn't become any type of messenger. He becomes, uh, he grows up in Egypt, best kind of, you know, prodigy of the day, uh, has compassion for his people and tries to take it into his own hands to make it happen. He becomes a murderer, right? Like all great guys in the Bible, he's got a bit of a checkered past, runs into the desert. God meets him out there in the desert. God shows up in the burning bush and says, Moses, you're my man. I'm going to send you back to save and lead my people out of Egypt. Excuse me. And they are going to know my name and they're going to be my people and they're going to live in the land I promised. And Moses is like, okay, this is great. I got these uh, miracles in my back pocket. We're going to go and do this. Moses shows up. Moses shows up and tells the people, this is what God's going to do. And everybody's like, this is great. Sounds awesome. And then they run full steam and in the middle of, this is not what we expected, right? Remember that? This is not the way we thought it was going to go down. Uh, Pharaoh is not rolling over and and letting us leave. Um, He's not giving us what we thought. And this is getting harder. And so then God says, okay, I'm going to invade Egypt. And what he does is through these plagues that we're now looking at, he is invading Egypt, right? The D-Day, invading Egypt to show their gods are useless, their gods are lifeless, and I am the true God that saves and fulfills my promises. And so that is where we are at in these plagues. And so that leads us all the way up, right? We had all these plagues. They have flies and water turning into blood and uh, gnats and fire from the sky. I mean, you, you know, like literally like hellfire and damnation from the sky coming down. I mean, it's, it's bad. And amidst all of this, in God's invasion, we now come up to the ninth plague and the tenth plague. Ninth plague, darkness for three days. Tenth plague, the killing of the firstborn. So, what we're going to do is we're going to look through these two plagues, and then I'm going to turn around and we're going to make a couple comments about them. So, if you have a Bible, we're going to look at chapter 10, verse 21, and I'm going to read the ninth plague for us. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days, but all the people of Israel had light where they, were, where they lived. Then Pharaoh called to Moses and said, Go, serve the Lord. Your little ones also may go with you. Yet only let your flocks and your herds remain behind. Let's just pause there for a second. So Pharaoh is saying, Okay, I give in. You can go, but leave your flocks and herds behind. Remember, at this point, all the flocks and herds of Egypt have been killed. And so he's trying to pull one over on them. He's like, Okay, yeah, you guys go. You know, and I pinky swear I won't steal all your stuff, right? Not likely to happen. But Moses said, "You must also let us have. Uh, you must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God 
Our livestock also must go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind. For we must take of them to serve the Lord our God. And we do not know with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. The Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart that he would not let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, Get out from me, take care never to see my face again. For on the day that you see my face again, you shall die. Moses said, as you say, as you say, I will not see your face again. So, right, this darkness to be felt, this darkness that lasts for three days, this is the darkness that comes across the land. Uh, I imagine the closest that we can get to experiencing this is like the winters here where like it's dark a lot and then you get the snow and you've <laughs> hunkered down, you just stay inside. But this is a darkness to be felt. It's a darkness that clings to you. I don't know if you've ever been in a cave a darkness down a cave, right? It, and you turn the lights off, and it just—it's—it's it's like eerily dark. Right? This is the darkness that that sits and rests on your skin. It just—it's dark. And in this plague, there is a bit of like we were talking about last time. There's a bit of not a one-to-one ratio between the plague. There is some correlation, right? That for the in the middle of the desert, right, where the Egyptians are, the sun god Ra would have been very important. And in their own mythology, they would have understood this to have been the end of the world, right? For them, for the sun god Ra to have been overcome, to be defeated, and the uh, gods of the dead or the gods of darkness to have won over, it would have been the end of the world, right? They would have been expecting uh, a bit of a zombie apocalypse and, uh, you know, something bad to happen next, which is exactly what's going on. Darkness is a sign that their gods cannot provide anything for them, not even the light of life, right? Their gods can do nothing to save them. This is the last plague upon them that comes with a warning. This plague, right, let my people go. No, okay, darkness that can be felt for three days. And what God is doing is he is pulling back Everything that is a blessing to them, he is effectively decreating Egypt, right? He's taking away their food. He's taking away their livestock. He's taking away everything. He's reversing, if you look at the creation account, you know, sun, water, ground. Like, he's taking away everything. He's taking them down to the bare bones and the basics. He is bringing the last judgment upon them, and this is... Uh, the last plague to come with a warning, right? Let my people go, and Pharaoh tries to pull this past, you know, this pinky swear, I promise I won't steal your stuff when you're away. Move on them. And so we move into the 10th plague. So what I want to do is I want to read chapter 11, 4 through 10, as we begin to look at what this plague is. So Moses said, thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl, who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great city throughout all the land of, there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. Not a dog shall, but not a dog shall growl against the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes distinction between Egypt 
in Israel. And these and all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out and all the people who follow you, and after that I will go out. And he, that's Moses, went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you that your wonders may be multiplied, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of the land. So here we have the 10th plague, right? The 10th plague is being introduced, and there is no, there's no exit strategy. There's no way to avoid it. This is coming, and is coming without exception. It's a, begin, it's a fulfilling of what God started back in chapter 4 of the book of Exodus. He said, uh, chapter 4, verse 23, And I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. So back in chapter 4, we were seeing that God calls Israel his son, right? He says, this is my firstborn son. This is my treasured son. This is the son I love. These are my people, and they are to me the possession of joy. And if you don't let my people go, I'm going to kill your firstborn son, right? This is, I'm going to take away from you what you are in this a bit of this dramatic image taking away from me. This is, and just remember, in the time, this is probably true up until pretty recent in human history, the firstborn son, right? We're not saying, the Bible's not saying uh, men are better than women and that the firstborn son is better than the lastborn son. What that meant in the cultural sense was firstborn son was the inheritance. He is the one who carries on the family name. He carries on the family business. He carries on, um, he, he, ins- he ensures that everything that you've worked for goes into the future, right? He's, he's the, the firstborn to ensure a hope for the future, carries on the family name. He gets all the blessings. And unfortunately at the time, everybody kind of had to fend for themselves. That it was not the firstborn son. That's just kind of the way it went. But the Bible is picking up that image and saying that firstborn son, he will die, right? Death will destroy all of your hope, all of your future, all that you hold in, hold as a blessing and a delight, all of that, because you have stiff-armed God and refused him, all of that will be taken away. All of that will be destroyed, and it all ultimately ends in death, right? These plagues, they start out annoying, right? Water to blood, gnats, they're annoying, but ultimately and the slow progression of the plagues leads to death. And there's a picture here for us of sin, of what sin does in our lives, of sin, how sin works in our lives, how sin slowly decays and slowly works and slowly warps our hearts and our lives because to stiff-arm God, to refuse him, is ultimately to lead to death, is a, a destruction, is what God is talking about here. This is what our sin does. A life apart from God leads to death. And that is why there are so, this, the Bible is full of pictures and narratives, right? There's not a, there, there are some parts of it, right? The New Testament letters, you know, here's what's true and here's how to live in light of that truth. But a lot of the Bible is stories, right? It's narratives. It's story after story, picture after picture. And a lot of that is because the stories draw us into them, right? At, 
I mean, we do. That's that's why TV shows are so popular today, right? And, and that's kind of like an understatement, right? <laughs> TV shows are popular. I'm not against TV shows, by the way. Like, for example, like Breaking Bad, right? Like Breaking Bad, it, it's it doesn't start out with this dude is bad, right? <laughs> he slowly goes down a course, right? He, he makes a small decision at the beginning of the series, and it leads to, I'm not giving away the ending, ultimately bad, right? That, that, that's the way the plagues are. They, they are a story, and the whole Bible is a story of showing life apart from God starts with small decisions that ultimately lead to catastrophic destruction for us, right? Nobody, nobody wakes up in the morning and says, you know what? I really want to destroy my life and be angry with God for all eternity. Like nobody wakes up and says that. But what we do is we wake up and with little decisions, we, we give little fists to God. We refuse God in little small ways. And what the plagues are designed to do is to show us those small decisions they play out for us, thankfully, in God's mercy. And in these dramas of the Bible, they are shown, they're there to show what our hearts will do when left to ourselves to refuse God. Because Pharaoh, like we were seeing last week with the plagues, Pharaoh is not really that much different than us. Apart from God's mercy, his sovereign mercy to soften our hearts, to open our eyes, to see him, we will progressively follow the course of these plagues to our own destruction Right, it's. I don't think it's on the slide, but you have this here in James, book of James, at the end of the Bible. Each when, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Right, what our own hearts want. Then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Right, a life apart from God of rejecting God, and whatever the small ways are in your life, it will lead to death. And God's mercy in this passage here, we actually begin to see it here. So he's, he's laid out, this is what the judgment is, right? Life apart from him leads to death. But his mercy now comes in, and it introduces what we began to talk about as one of the most important moments in the entire Bible. So I'm going to read chapter 12, verses 1 through 13. You can follow along, but we're going to see. This is, this is where God's mercy breaks in. His judgment could come down rightfully and just say, this is, this is it. But he provides mercy, right? We've been seeing this God, his merciful. His mercy breaks in. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. This is the first day of the year. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You make it. You may take it for the sh- from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, right? Just as a comment, keep it until the 14th day meant they became pretty intimately familiar. 
you have a little lamb in your house, you're going to pet that lamb, you're going to get to know it. You're going to keep it until the 14th day of this month, but the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then you shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorpost and the lentil of your house, so that's the part above the door, in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roast it, its head and with its legs and its inner parts, and you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remained until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened and your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. And I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where, the, where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Right, this, is, this is the central moment of the book of Exodus. And what God is saying is that my judgment's coming. And what's fascinating here is that there's no distinction between Israel and Egypt, right? The same instructions given to everybody. You, know, you could kind of get the sense from the plagues as they developed, right? Israel's been a bit, they've kind of been protected from several of them as they've been developing. You could kind of get the sense of like, oh, we're the people of God. We've got this covered. We're okay. We're special. We're different. We're better than the Egyptians. And this plague is coming and is saying, judgment should be on everybody. Everybody deserves it equally, both you and the Egyptians. There's no difference. They go to that church. You go to this church. There's no difference between you. It's coming. And here's my provision of mercy, right? My provision of mercy is for you. My provision of mercy is the death of this lamb. And when I see it, I'll pass over you. Right? So they would put the door, they would get the lamb kill it, they would hold them, take the blood, and they would put it on the doorpost of their house, on the lentil. And that's all that God needed. That's all that God wanted. And we see here in verse 13, this is, I want to zero in on this a little bit. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. Right, so the, the blood, what's going on with this blood? Why is the blood there? Why is, because it's kind of like God could have mercy on whenever anybody wants to have mercy on. Why is there this insistence on the blood part of this? The blood is there and because God is saying judgment is coming. Everybody is going to experience my judgment because I am a holy God. But with the sacrifice of this lamb, what that shows is that the lamb experienced the judgment you deserved rather than you. Judgment's coming. You deserve it. But the lamb, when I see the blood, the blood shows that the lamb experienced the death that you deserved instead of you. Because death will come, 
but the lamb took the place that you should have had, right? And notice, notice in this, right? Israel, Israel has done nothing in this story. Israel has just kind of stood there amidst all of these judgments coming on. God has been the one to introduce mercy every moment, every step along the way. And this is this, this picture, this lamb, right? Israel is not kind of like, uh, hey, can we get, can we, is there a get out card? <laughs> is there a way to skip go? No. God, God's the one, this is God's idea. God says, I'm bringing judgment but I want to have mercy. I'm going to have mercy. And so here's how I'm going to have mercy. I'm going to give you a lamb to bear your judgment so that when I see the blood, when I see the lamb, I will pass over. If you're following the story and you know the Bible, you know that this is exactly how Jesus' death is described. I mean, the New Testament is not uh, shy about making the connection between Jesus and the Passover. Actually, each, each of the gospel accounts at the end, when Jesus' crucifixion is described, in each of their own ways, they make it very explicit that this is the sacrifice in our place is Jesus. Jesus is the perfect lamb. Each of them in their own way, but what I want to do is I just want to point out Luke, because we were preaching through Luke last year, I just want to point it and and show how the plagues show up here. Luke 23, starting at 44. It was now about the sixth hour, so Jesus is being led to his own crucifixion. He is on the cross. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. Tenth plague right here with the death of Christ. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God and said, certainly this man was innocent. So here we have Jesus crying out in affliction. The tenth plague, when the people experienced it, we're going to read, they cried out with affliction. And the centurion confirming, here was an innocent man, like a spotless lamb that was selected. Here was Jesus crying out, the firstborn dying. And actually, Matthew and Mark talk about Jesus being Um, the treasured son of God dying. And John talks about how actually Jesus was led out to the cross at the exact moment of the Passover supper being prepared, right? So Jesus is the perfect, he is the fulfillment of this moment where Jesus will, by his death, free us from our Egypt, right? The Egypt, the judgment that we should experience, the land of darkness, the, the, the place where we were all born into, the sin that we experience, right? The, the gods and idols that, like the Egyptians, we love to go and worship. Jesus, by his death, will free us from them. And so I just want to go back to the Exodus story and close it, and then I want to make a few observations 
So chapter 12, verse 29 there in Exodus. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat in his throne to the firstborn of the captive in the dungeon. And all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night. He and all his servants of the, and all of the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt. And there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, out of, from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, go serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. So this is, this is where the tenth plague ends, right? This is where the judgment has fallen. It's actually pretty, pretty sparse in the details with the judgment and how it plays out, right? It's, it's actually more important, God's mercy, his provision of the, of the lamb. And what this, is, what this is leading us to see, I think, is a death of sobering is coming. Judgment will happen. And this is where all of our sin leads. This will be, we will all be in this place at one moment or another. We will all face this in the end. And all of us will face it. And we will look to God's sacrifice. And we will wonder how God's sacrifice frees us from the curse of sin and the curse of judgment. And what I think we're seeing in these last two plagues is that we can believe that God's sacrifice is enough. God's sacrifice is enough for us. God's sacrifice that he provides for us in this story, it's the lamb. In the reality, it's Jesus, right? In the story, it's a bit of a coloring book, right? These are the pictures, these, you know, animal stories. These are the, the beginning simple pictures to show us what is the reality that we'll find in Christ. And in Christ, who does truly and completely free us from our sin, free us from our judgment before God, free us from the judgment of death that we deserve. This judgment is paid for because God provided the sacrifice. God's, right, John 3, 16, God's love the world, that he sent his only son. God sends his son to die in our place. And so I want to make two observations. If the point of this passage is believing that God's sacrifice is enough for us, there's just two things I want us to see here. I want us to see that we can believe God's word. I just want to look over at chapter 12 then. We can believe, believe his word. Chapter 12, verse 12, verse 7, I'm sorry. Then they shall take some of the blood of the lamb and put it on the two doorposts and the lentil of the house in which they eat it. And then picking up in verse 12, and I will pass through the land of Egypt that night and I will strike all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, both man and beast and all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague shall befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Right, judgment is coming. It's a bit of a post-apocalyptic. You can kind of begin to feel, the reason we're going over the story is kind of rehearsing it again and again is because you want to feel where the story leads you. You want to feel what it would have been like. Can you imagine to have had the flies and the frogs and the water turning into blood and 
the fire coming down from the sky and the darkness and the dust storm coming. I mean, you could just imagine how this feels, right? I mean, if you, if you watch any like post-apocalyptic movies, I mean, it could feel like, you know, where are the zombies? Cause this is bad. Like this is, this is not good. It can feel like it's going from worse to worse. This is not going well. And maybe, uh, maybe this feels a bit of like your life. Things are getting harder. Things are not getting easier. My body's breaking down. My friends are dying. I've seen people get murdered. I'm seeing drugs in the street. I am experiencing the destruction of sin in my family. My aunt and uncle, they won't talk to each other. My cousins died. Things are getting worse. Things are not getting better. Things seem to be going from worse to worse. And yet, we're here at church, and we're talking about this God in the Bible who's promised these great things for us, and I'm just not seeing it happen. (laughs) Like maybe that's just the way it feels. And I I think that we're supposed to relate to these people in this story because it just feels like sin is so destructive and corrosive that it can make us feel like, God, where are you at? What gives? Because this is not this is not playing out the way I expected it to. I think if we feel like that, we are feeling like what they would have felt like. Because you can imagine seeing all this destruction, right? All this destruction around them. And then here comes Moses and he says, okay, God's provided a sacrifice so that your firstborn son doesn't die. And all you've got (laughs) is Moses' promise, God's word to say, there's a sacrifice. And when I see the sacrifice, I'm not going to execute judgment on you. Right? It's, it's just a word from Moses, from God. I'm going to pro- I promise when I see the sacrifice of the lamb, I will pass over you. Right? I mean, if you're, if you're watching this story, I mean, you're like, I mean, this is, this is chaos. And in the midst of all the chaos of our lives, God's promise comes to us and says, I look to a sacrifice. And if you look to that sacrifice, you'll be saved. I mean, it seems pretty thin, right? I mean, we could just say the promise of the gospel, God will accept me because of what Jesus did. That's a promise. It's just uttered out of my mouth. It's a promise from God that seems, it could feel pretty thin, but it's God's word, right? It's God's word because what you're invited to believe when you look at God's word, when you hear the gospel, when you hear that God will accept you because of God's sacrifice in Jesus, what you're invited to believe is not only God's word, but the character of God's word, right? That when God says something, that he is faithful, that he's true, that he's merciful, that he will do what he's promised, that he's not going to kind of pull one over on you and do some sort of like, you know, a casino trick on you or something like that, that God's actually going to do what he says he's going to do. That God, when he says, I, when I give a promise and that promise is look to Jesus and he will stand in your place for you, you're believing God's going to make bank on that promise, that God's true, that he's honest and that he is merciful, that you believe what his word says. So that when Christ says it is finished on the cross, right? What he means in the midst of his sacrifice for you 
is that all those anxieties, all the fears, all the things that you wish people don't find out about you, all the things that don't seem to go away, the things that, you know, if we were to sit down and talk, you would hope that I don't ask the question about that, all the guilt and shame, all the things that would, if we were to lay out your life on the table, you would want to run and hide. Those things, Jesus says, are finished. They hold no power over you, just as the Egyptian gods held no power over God's promise to save. God's promise to you is, I save, and you're free because of who I am, because of Jesus' sacrifice. What that also means is that when God makes a promise that he is enough, that his sacrifice is enough, there's no backup plan, right? There's no trapdoor. We like to have backup plans. We tend to like, um, you know, if this plan doesn't work out, well, I at least have this. Um, you know, what? it's funny, uh, one of the funny things about being a pastor is the way people will talk about pastoral role pastoral office and people are like oh well Jacob you should you should get you know these sort of achievement achievements in your role so that you know if you ever wanted to go to another church someday you'd have a better resume and I'm like what do you think I'm doing this for like I'm not doing this to have like a great resume I mean you guys are great but I'm not I'm not doing this to beef up my resume as some some sort of like a backup option so that I can like say like oh, things at King's Cross aren't working out so well I'm just going to go up the road and find something better like this is not that I'm not doing this to get some sort of backup plan or I'm not doing this to sort of like kind of build up some sort of resume, but we do the same thing, right? We think, you know what, I'm going to really trust God um, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to believe that he's going to provide for me. But then when the stress of the day comes and it's a difficult day, at the end of the day, what do we go to? Maybe it's binge watching Netflix or binging on ice cream or worse, right? These things that we go to reveal that we have backup plans and we have backup hopes, right? Well, God doesn't pull through. I at least will, you know, go to my, whatever your addiction or your brokenness is. I wonder why, I wonder if this is why we often don't um, pray a lot in our personal lives, prayerlessness in our lives, right? Prayerlessness basically means, um, I think I can do this without God's help, right? Whatever God says to do, he intends for us to pray for his help and then to receive his grace and to follow him in doing it. But prayerlessness just basically means, uh, I think I can do this. I can do what God wants me to do um, without God's help. It's a, we're, we're saying, I'm my own backup plan for God's purposes in my life, which, I mean, it sounds pretty silly when you lay it out like that, but we, we had these backup plans in our lives. And what God is saying here is saying, no, my promise for you to provide for you is enough. I can provide for you. When I say I've got it, his sacrifice for you is enough. His sacrifice is all that will help you. It is all that you need. Faith is an incredibly uncomfortable experience, right? <laughs> Trusting God's got it is saying, I don't. 
guys, let's just admit we're capitalists. We love to earn stuff. We like to get stuff for what we earn. The Bible says you cannot earn this. You will never get this. But God says, I give it freely. I give this sacrifice in your place freely because of who I am. I think the second thing that we're going to see here, if we're looking at believing in God's sacrifices enough for us, is treasuring his blood. I know this sounds a bit weird. We're not being vampires or anything like that. But I do think that we're supposed to draw into this sacrifice here. Treasuring his blood. Can you imagine this story, right? God's promised to kill the firstborn. And he said, this is the way that you can receive my mercy is killing the lamb in its pla- in, uh, in, your, in this judgment's place. And you can imagine the following morning uh, hearing the wailing in the streets. Can you hear the wailing in the streets of people's loss? And you wake up in the morning or maybe you've been up all night and you go to the doorpost and you see the blood that you smeared there. And then you turn and you see maybe your firstborn son running down the aisle coming to see you or you see him sleeping in somebody's lap. You see the blood and you see the life. And can you imagine your affection for that lamb sacrifice growing? This, This lamb dying so that we don't experience death. That's the picture that the New Testament draws us into with the death of Christ. It's not guilting us, but it's inviting us. First Peter 1, 17, And if you call on him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefather from the brokenness and sin in your life. You are ransomed from it, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. You were ransomed from the death that you deserve, from the judgment that we deserve. We were ransomed from it, guys. By the precious blood, the the blood of Christ on the cross should begin to have a sweetness to it, not because of the gore or any of that stuff, but because of what it represents, because of what it signifies, because of what it points to, his love dying on the cross in our place, right? This is the precious blood of Christ, the son of God, who was perfect and pure and never had an evil thought, never lied never had to kind of waver on answering questions about his background or past. Jesus, who was perfect in every way, he on the cross died in our place, this blood in our place, and it should begin to take on a meaning of what mind-boggling love that he would die in my place. Right, The, the, the Son of God dying in our place because he loved us, right? And it wasn't just, it wasn't an animal, right? Animals, I mean, look, I'm sure your dogs are great, but animals are dumb, right? They just don't know what's going on. I'm sure your animals are not dumb, but animals in general, 
Jesus, perfect. And he's not just perfect from a distance. The Bible talks about him being your friend. He knows you personally. He knows you intimately. He knows everything about you. And he walked up the cross with God's glory before him and your sins on his shoulders. He walked up to the cross and died in your place so that now when you see the cross, the cross should begin to stir our affections. This is where it all is finished. This is where the judgment of God for you and me, for us, the judgment of God is finished On the cross, in our place, he stood condemned in our place so that we could enjoy God's fellowship. Do you see what's going on in this Exodus picture, right? There is something going on where where God is saying a sacrifice so that you don't experience judgment. But the other thing going on is that they are feasting. We're going to talk about this next week. We're going to talk about the Passover meal. We're going to pause, look at the Passover meal, and look at how the Passover meal now translates over into the Lord's Supper for us. And we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about the connections, why we do this every week. We're going to talk about that next week. But, But they are enjoying God's presence, enjoying God's fellowship, enjoying God's smile and presence with them amidst all this judgment, just like we are, right? In Jesus, the sacrifice, the precious blood of Christ that brings us near to God, which he died in our place, We now live in the joy of God's presence with us right now. As we eat and feast after this, we should be under God's judgment. And yet, because the blood of Christ is, according to the story, over us, we can can engage and love each other and experience God's presence with us and be near to God without any fear. There's nothing to fear anymore. There is nothing to be afraid of with death. There's nothing to be afraid of with other people knowing us, of experiencing God's presence. And there is now all the judgment, the darkness that we would experience otherwise is done away with because the precious blood of Christ and all the things that we enjoy, becoming God's son and daughter, being freed from judgment, being able to grow with God, right? Fumbling lives, trying to be better disciples, fumbling together, all because Christ shed his blood for us that we would know God's presence with us. His sacrifice at your dying breath. It is, I am so grateful that we are all together a part of King's Cross. And all of your accomplishments and your families. All those things will not matter. When you come to your last breath, the only thing that will carry you from this life into God's presence with peace is the precious blood of Christ. Your families are great, or maybe they're not. This church is great, or maybe we're not. The only thing that is assured to carry you with peace and to God's presence is the blood of Christ shed in your place so that, as we saw in this passage, when I see the blood of Christ, God says to you, I will pass up my judgment is passed over you. Which means, as we're going to see in this story, we're led into God's promised land. We're led in God's presence, led to enjoy God's presence with us. 
Guys, we, we should be growing day by day in deeper affection and love and treasuring of Christ's death for us on the cross. Not out of some sort of badgering over you over the head, but because of what we see about God in the cross. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that Christ and his sacrifice for us is enough. We thank you that he is sufficient in every way. That you have forgiven us in Jesus and you have accepted us and you have freed us from our Egypt into your promised land because of the death of Christ on the cross. So Lord, we look to him as they looked to their sign and we thank you for what you have done for us. Help us to believe afresh and to enjoy your smile upon us in the cross of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure, proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.